Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Battle of Nancy of 1477, part two of three. On the 15th of June, 1467, Philip the Good, the Duke of Burgundy, passed away at the age of 71. The body of the old Duke was laid on his bed in state for all to see a black cap placed on his head. And the next day his body was taken in a lead coffin to the ducal chapel and placed on a six-foot-high platform draped to the ground in black velvet with four massive candles burning at the four corners. His son, Charles, on hearing the news, raced to his father's deathbed to take charge of the funerary arrangements. As everything in the Burgundian court, the ceremony was a grand spectacle with no expense spared fit for a remarkable ruler who had reigned for more than 47 years, ever since the famous assassination of his father, John the Fearless, on the bridge of Montereau in 1419. Philip's long reign had been prosperous and mainly peaceful. Thanks to his great energy, determination and skilful diplomacy, the Grand Duke of West, as he was often referred to, had successfully collected several territories, most notably in the Low Countries. He had been a great patron of the arts and had amassed a great treasure in his castle at Lille. Despite all these achievements, Richard Vaughan in his biography of Philip believes the Duke does not deserve the praise of his admirers. Vaughan writes, quote, The fact is that Philip the Good was by no means a successful dynast. Until 1430 he had no heir at all and his life alone separated Burgundy from disintegration. Though he fathered a bevy of bastards, he contrived to provide his house with but a single heir. The fact is, too, that Philip the Good did little or nothing to consciously develop or centralise the administrative machinery of his territories. His internal policies had the effect of provoking damaging revolts against him in Ghent, Bruges and elsewhere, and he failed to secure a crown or even an improved status of some kind in the empire." End quote. Vaughan's sharpest criticism of Philip is how he allowed himself to be duped and bullied by the French kings, Charles VII and then Louis XI. By signing the Treaty of Arras in 1435 with the French, Philip threw away a profitable alliance with the English in exchange for a poor settlement with Charles VII, who then did everything in his power to undermine the Burgundian state. When Philip gave refuge to Charles's son, Louis, he must have expected the Dauphin to be more sympathetic to Burgundy when he became king himself. Instead, as soon as Louis XI gained the crown, his gullible uncle was no longer of use to him. With at least as much cunning and ruthlessness as his father, Louis acted at every possible opportunity against the interests of his former benefactor. 
Only three years into his reign, the French invaded several Burgundian towns along the Somme River, triggering years of intermittent conflict. Paul Murray Kendall, in his biography of Louis XI, describes the situation between France and Burgundy as being analogous to that of the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the West in the 20th century, which was at its height at the time of his writing. Murray even credits Louis with inventing Cold War, or at least with bringing it to a stage of development otherwise unknown. Louis XI and Philip the Good fought only fleetingly directly against each other, but for years there was a high state of tension between the two rulers. Mostly they fought each other by proxy, most notably by Louis supporting local opponents to the Burgundians in numerous minor conflicts. As Philip the Good grew older, he had dreamed of leading a great crusade against the Ottoman Turks, but the project was never viable and an unwelcome distraction. Philip also allowed himself to be too easily influenced by courtiers, who exploited the Duke's goodwill and some of whom were even in the pay of the French. His falling out with his son, Charles, was not untypical in an age where rulers seemed to constantly have to deal with the ambitions of even their closest family members. But it was, in this case, unnecessary and particularly unfortunate. In his last years of life, at least, Philip was able to make up with his son, Charles, who began to take an active role in government, especially when his elderly father became ill. When Charles became Duke of Burgundy in May 1467, he had many challenges ahead of him, notably how to consolidate his dynasty's precarious power. Somehow he needed to weld the scattered territories that his father had collected into a coherent and stable whole. Charles had always been suspicious of French intentions, which may have been a cause of conflict with his father in the early years. And when he came to power, he held no doubts at all about the ill intentions of Louis. He is known to history by his supporters as Charles the Bold, and by his critics as Charles the Rash. I will refer to him as the former in this podcast, but will let you judge for yourself what name you think is most appropriate. Before his accession to power, Charles, in his capacity as the Count of Chaudois, had built around him a group of followers who went on to form the nucleus of a new administrative personnel when the new duke took command. The task which most occupied him for the first 18 months of his rule was to subdue the rebellious townspeople of Ghent, and then Liège. Inside the walls of many a Flemish town, intermittent civil war was waged between the popular, radical elements and the politically moderate classes. With force of arms, Philip the Good had put down each revolt in turn and asserted his authority by restricting urban privileges. But his hardline policies often had the effect of creating much resentment and so inadvertently encouraged support for the more revolutionary elements. Charles de Bold continued with exactly the same policies as his father. In Ghent, after nearly two years of rebellion from 1467 to 69, Charles forced the town into submission and deprived its citizens of practically any semblance of civic autonomy. He even considered building a fortress outside the city to ensure his continued dominance there. The city of Liège, which lay in the valley of the Meuse, in the east of modern-day Belgium, was the other principal centre of resistance against Burgundian authority in the Low Countries. Encouraged by the French king, Louis XI, its citizens arose in revolt in 1465, after Philip the Good had deposed their prince-bishop and replaced him with his own man. Always hoping for help from France, they rose in revolt in 1465. That winter, Charles the Bold, at the head of a considerable army, inflicted a humiliating defeat on rebels. 
and the following spring he brutally sacked the town of Dinon, ally of Liège, after the citizens had mocked him. In 1467, Charles, now Duke of Burgundy, put down another revolt in the city. He crushed the citizen army in the field, raised the walls and gates of the city, and imposed a Burgundian governor. The next year, 1468, Liège rebelled yet again. This time the revolt happened to coincide with a major Franco-Burgundian peace conference between Louis and Charles, hosted by the Burgundians in Tower of Peron by the River Somme. Negotiations were not getting very far at all, although the French were very keen to persuade the Duke to renounce his support for the Yorkists in England and the Duke of Brittany, against whom Louis was in conflict. When news arrived to Peron of the revolt, Charles is said to have exploded with anger, well aware that Louis had been willfully fanning the flames of discontent within the city. The Duke forcefully accused the King of betraying him and threatened vengeance. Louis, aware of the vulnerable situation in which he found himself, reacted quickly. He sent eloquent assurances to his host that, outraged by the actions of the rebels, he would be happy to march with the Duke to chastise the city. Some hours later, the king regretted his offer, but was not able to wriggle out of it without incurring Charles's wrath. And so, in the end, it was the joint Franco-Burgundian army that marched on Liège in October to put down the latest revolt. After brave resistance and hundreds of deaths of its defenders, the city was forced to capitulate on the 31st of October. Charles's forces then sacked and pillaged the city, which is said to have burned for seven days, so that by the end the city centre was effectively gutted. The Duke abolished the town's laws and customs, the law courts and the entire civic constitution. He also removed a bronze column in the marketplace called the Peron, symbol of the civic dignity and jurisdiction of Liège. The column was later returned to the marketplace after the end of Burgundian rule, where it still stands today, a symbol of pride for the city. Charles allowed a relieved Louis to return home as soon as the battle was won. It must have been strange for many to see the French king and the duke appearing to cooperate militarily, even briefly, when there were such bitter rivals. Soon after the submission of Liège, tensions rose again. Outright war was probably only avoided because both sides had other concerns they needed to juggle with. Louis's energies were devoted as much against Brittany in this period as against Burgundy, and the ever-changing political situation in England made things uncertain. In England, the Earl of Warwick, nicknamed the Kingmaker, had fallen out with Edward IV. Forced into exile, Warwick gained refuge at the court of Louis. Then, in September 1470, with help from the French, he returned to England and drove Edward off the throne into exile in Holland. Louis' hostility towards Burgundy developed rapidly in the next months. In November 1470, the French king instructed his ambassadors to negotiate a treaty with Warwick. The Earl was to be granted Holland and Zealand in return for an English attack on Burgundy, time to coincide with a French assault. Richard Vaughan believes that Louis's intention was the total destruction of Burgundian power by the conquest of all Charles's lands. Louis attempted to win over local nobles by proclaiming in February 1471 that he promised to treat as his own subject anyone who went over to him from the Duke of Burgundy within a month and to maintain him in all lands, lordships and revenues. The reverse side was that the same nobles would lose their titles if they refused and if Louis successfully invaded. The campaign which now ensued was a war of raids and skirmishes fought in late February and March at various places along the Franco-Burgundian frontier. 
Unfortunately for Louis, Warwick was unable to be of assistance. On the 14th of March, Edward arrived back in England and exactly a month later defeated the Earl at the Battle of Barnet. Warwick was killed and Edward returned to the English throne. After that, the Franco-Burgundian War began to peter out and a temporary truce was agreed. The next year, the two sides fought once more, this time mostly on French soil, but fighting was inconclusive. After some Burgundian successes in September and October, Louis agreed on the 3rd of November 1472 to a five-year-long session of hostilities. In the event, the series of truces persisted for the next three years, until 1475. The focus of attention for Charles the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, was to be diverted next to the region of Alsace, an area some 190 kilometres long and 50 kilometres wide on the western side of the River Rhine. Charles would benefit from gaining control of the area which would help link up his northern and southern territories. But he made no great efforts to achieve this until an opportunity arose in 1469, when he was offered part of the region by the Duke of Austria, Sigmund. Sigmund, a cousin of Emperor Frederick III, was a member of the House of the Habsburgs, in this period a powerful family, but no more so than perhaps half a dozen other houses. He ruled the region of Tyrol in the Austro-Italian Alps, the so-called Forlander, a group of territories and rights scattered along both banks of the Upper Rhine, which was subject to frequent aggression from the Swiss, especially from the city of Bern. Sigmund did his best to obtain allies against these formidable allies, but with no real success. His cousin, Frederick, was more concerned with the Ottoman Turks, and the other potential allies, the princes of southwest Germany, preferred to remain on friendly terms with the Swiss. In March 1469, Sigmund visited Charles de Bauer to sell some of his rights. In part, he needed an ally to help defend him against the Swiss, and in part, he was in need of cash. In the Treaty of Saint-Omer, Charles accepted the Upper Rhine Forlander in mortgage for 50,000 florins. It was not an outright purchase of land, more the acquisition of a collection of miscellaneous collection of rights. Moreover, Sigmund had the right to redeem this mortgage at any time if he could find the money to do so. Meanwhile, the neighbouring Duchy of Lorraine was another region where Charles was able to obtain power through diplomacy. In October 1470, the new Duke, René of Lorraine, signed the Treaty of Nancy with Charles. It made sense for the two men to cooperate as they both feared attack from the French. The main clause of the treaty was to allow each other's forces to move freely through the other's territories. It was very useful to Charles to be able to transfer men back and forth freely between his northern and southern domains. Like in Alsace, Charles did not gain outright control over Lorraine, but may well have hoped that the agreement was a step in the process of eventually bringing these regions under full Burgundian rule. Then, in 1473, Charles the Bold extended his authority yet further when he launched a successful invasion of Gelders, a region in today's central Netherlands. Unlike in Alsace and Lorraine, Gelders became fully incorporated into the administration of the Burgundian state. These events demonstrate that Charles was ambitious, but in every case he had acted judiciously and not overreached himself. In the autumn of 1473, Charles met Frederick III in a conference in the city of Trier. His hope was to persuade the emperor to elevate his title to that of king. 
After all, Charles was now as powerful a ruler as any monarch in Europe. The possibility was seriously considered, but failed for unknown reasons. Perhaps Charles's demands were too high, or perhaps there were too many other princes who were opposed to his coronation. Either way, even without a crown, Charles's start was in the ascendancy. His court in Trier had been displayed as the most splendid in Europe, and he enjoyed a wide circle of allies and supporters. Also, the Burgundian army was as modern and impressive as any in Europe, still the subject of much interest today. Up until the 1470s, the Dukes of Burgundy had had to rely for his military campaigns on the levying of vassals and recruitment of mercenaries. Philip's solution, a professional standing army, revolutionised warfare in Europe. There had been a permanent ducal household from at least 1419. Powerful aristocrats also maintained similar smaller bodyguards, but nothing that could be called a standing army. After the campaign in Liège of 1467, Philip continued building an army, even in peacetime, and expanded greatly his household. This was made possible by the wealth of his territories and the introduction of more regular taxation, replacing the ad hoc taxes collected only in times of need. This was not Charles's only military innovation. According to Nicholas Michael and G. A. Embleton in their book, Armies of Medieval Burgundy, 1364-1477, quote, Charles the Bold's military reputation rests mainly on the extraordinary detailed reorganisation of his armies. His Compagnie d'Ordonnance, although at first based on earlier models of King Charles VII of France, were to become the basis for most 16th century armies, and may be said to have influenced the organisation of all European armies in early modern times. Charles introduced many ordinances, the first in 1468, which dealt mainly with the disciplinary measures and equipment. However, the most important and enlightening ordinances were those of 1471, 1472 and 1473, from which a remarkable picture of the life and organisation of a late medieval army may be gleaned. Salaries, leave, uniform, equipment, drill, inspections, flags, billeting, roll calls, punishment all are laid in detail that reflect the direct intervention of Charles himself. End quote. Among Charles's most notable innovations was the first widespread use of uniforms, surcoats of blue and white with a red St Andrew's cross. This was an understandable response to the challenge of welding together forces from disparate regions, and a reflection of the Duke's efforts to build a unified Burgundian state. In addition, the leaders of the units became professional captains who used the standard Burgundian flags and ensigns instead of the types of personal banners used by nobles previously. In the 1470s, Charles de Bois' attention was directed more to his interest in his south and east than to France. Trouble started to brew when his supposed ally, Sigmund of Austria, became increasingly frustrated that Charles was showing no sign of joining him in war against the Swiss. After all, this had been Sigmund's main motivation for mortgaging away some of his rights in Alsace. Sigmund was further angered when he offered Charles to buy back his rights, but was refused. In the autumn of 1471, Sigmund turned from plans of possibly attacking the Swiss to possibilities of arbitration. To this end, he met the Swiss in October and signed an agreement with them. The parties agreed that Sigmund should regain possession of the lands and rights that they had mortgaged away. 
In concrete terms, the settlement achieved nothing more than a statement of principles, but it was important in uniting together the Austrians and the Swiss. Up until now, Charles the Bold had always enjoyed good relations with the Swiss, but his gains in Alsace gave him, for the first time, a border with them, and started to create tensions. Charles sent an ambassador to Bern and her allies to assure them of his continuing friendship and good intentions. He offered an investigation into allegations against Burgundian officials in Alsace, supplies of salt and other economic benefits in return for Swiss mercenaries joining Charles's army and the abandonment by the Swiss of any alliances they might have with Louis XI. But the Swiss were not impressed and rejected the Duke's overtures. Sigmund, meanwhile, was playing a double game. At the same time as he was negotiating agreements with the Swiss, he wrote to Charles still hoping to convince the Duke for a joint attack against them. Charles's choice of bailiff or chief administrator in Upper Alsace turned out to be unfortunate. The aggressive attitude of Peter von Hagenbach quickly turned many against him. The leaders of towns such as Strasbourg, Mulhouse and Bern became increasingly distrustful of Charles's ambitions, fearing in particular encroachment on access to local trade routes upon which their thriving economies depended. Part of the reasons for the distrust is likely the linguistic divide between the two, while the Burgundians were mainly French speakers, the Swiss spoke German. Thus a common language helped bond the Swiss as a group against a common enemy. In March 1473, a major peace conference was held in Basel, a Swiss town today on the border of both France and Germany. A project for a ten-year alliance was drawn up between the bishops of Strasbourg and Basel, the Margrave of Baden and the towns of Strasbourg, Basel, Comar on one side, and the Swiss with Mulhouse on the other. That summer, Charles again tried to make peace with the towns. In exchange for an alliance, he was ready to offer the Swiss four towns in the Black Forest, which he currently held in mortgage from Sigmund. This type of offer may have been effective when used in negotiations with fellow nobles, but the Swiss were unimpressed. Charles's offer did not address what was important to them, namely the irritations and provocations to which Hagenbach was constantly subjecting them to, in and around Alsace. They had good reasons for concern about Burgundian ambitions in their towns and cities, especially after hearing about the heavy-handed treatment of any dissent in the Low Countries. And so, in March 1474, at Constance, today on the border of Switzerland and Germany, the Swiss held a conference, as a contemporary cleric from Basel put it, quote, to consider the peace of the land and how to extricate it from the tyranny of the Duke of Burgundy and his wicked bailiff Peter von Hagenbach. There they signed a series of agreements which led to the creation of what became known as the League of Constance. Firstly, a so-called everlasting peace between Austria and the Swiss was accepted and proclaimed in principle, although the final details of the settlement were left for subsequent settlement with the cooperation of Louis XI. Secondly, a ten-year defensive alliance of the Upper Rhine powers was created which acquired the name of the Lower Union – the League of Constance, as a grand alliance against Charles the Bold, was essentially defensive in nature, and except possibly in Alsace posed no immediate threat to Burgundian power. Its membership, mostly towns such as Basel, Strasbourg, Zurich and Bern, were too loosely organised and scattered to be capable of a sustained joint military campaign. But the organisation did still pose a serious challenge to Charles's ambitions in the region. 
In April 1474, the people of Alsace rose in revolt against Burgundian rule, angered in particular by the draconian policies of Peter von Hagenbach. Charles's bailiff was arrested and for several weeks incarcerated and savagely tortured, while a long list of complaints were drawn up against him. Hagenbach's principal defence, that he was only carrying out orders, was rejected. He was taken out and beheaded before a large crowd who had come from far and wide to observe the spectacle. In legend and literature, Hagenbach still lives on as the archetypal tyrant of a detested foreign regime. By all accounts, he had acted in an arbitrary and offensive way, although in his defence, Richard Vaughan lays some of the blame for the bailiff's fall on the lack of support, money and troops that Charles the Bold failed to provide. Either way, the revolt in Alsace marks the beginning of what became known as the Burgundian Wars, 1474-1477, actually a series of scattered events in which Charles was the principal protagonist, attempting to impose his authority in different regions. The Burgundian Wars, which culminates in the Battle of Nancy of 1477, will be the subject of next week's podcast. It's always great to hear from you. You can contact me on the Facebook page of the podcast or you can write to me directly at carl at historyeurope.net or put a message on the blog, which is www.historyeurope.net or there is a Twitter account as well, at historyeuropekb, KB for key battles. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles, and I hope you can join me next week for the concluding part of the Battle of Nancy and the fall of the Duchy of Burgundy. Until then, goodbye.